Well, good morning. Welcome to Spring Creek Church. I'm so glad you chose to be with us whenever it is you're joining us, whatever time of day, wherever it is you happen to be. I hope this message is just what the doctor ordered. We're beginning a brand new series today. I'm calling a prayer series for non-prayers. And so really what we want to do in the coming weeks is talk about all those areas where people have expressed frustration with prayers not in order to justify it, but really to empathize with that and to show how that the scriptures address all of those issues. Today's issue is one of the biggies, the problem of unanswered prayer. As we get started, let's pray. Father, thanks so much that we have this time together. I know, Lord, that you have been with me as I prepared for this message. I pray, God, that you'll be with us all now as we receive it. May we hear from you what we're needing to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, for 10 years, Mike Turner had been the pastor at Boone Memorial Presbyterian Church in Caldwell, Idaho. He was a big man, six foot six, 48 years old, and he loved to hike in the backcountry wilderness. In the summer of 1998, to cap off his three-month sabbatical, he decided to take a nine-day hike in western Wyoming. He wanted to do it all alone. That way he could travel at his own pace. He could take the time he wanted for his photography and he could just enjoy the quiet time with God. It was gonna be the trip of a lifetime. So in big letters across the top of his itinerary, he wrote, wander in wonder. On the morning of July 30th, 1998, Turner loaded up his gear and his dog into his Honda Civic and he hit the road. Once he arrived at his destination, he took off on his hike. As he made his way through the wilderness, he journaled every day about all the beauty he was seeing and taking in. Then on the fourth day, because he encountered some difficulties on his planned route, he took a detour to a nameless lake that sits at about 11,400 feet in Wyoming's Fitzpatrick Wilderness. At around one o'clock in the afternoon on August the 2nd, he stepped onto a large boulder that shifted beneath his weight. So he took a leap toward the next boulder, but he didn't quite land at the right angle, so he lost his footing. As he slid down that boulder, the boulder that had shifted kept falling forward. He ended up getting caught between the two boulders just as they slammed together. They pinned him like they would like a jaws of a trap. The rocks caught him just above his knees. Miraculously, his legs weren't broken. So with his bare hands and then his tripod, he pushed with all of his might against the boulders, trying to move them apart to set himself free. At first, the boulder moved just a little, I mean, just enough to ease the pain, but he still couldn't get free. For more than an hour, Turner pried and shoved, but to complicate things, he was trapped facing away from the boulder that had pinned him, his legs merely dangling in midair. Even a big man like Turner couldn't manage to get enough leverage to move a piece of granite the size of a small car. His hope began to fade. So he wrote in his journal, about two hours ago, a large rock rolled upon me and trapped my legs. I was very careful, be sure of that, but I hurt. I'm in your hands, Lord. I don't know what I face. So it's Turner's, Turner's journal that really tells the story of a man up against life's ultimate reality. Will I live or will I die? In his journal, he records his prayers for help, his frustration with his situation, and his struggle with unanswered prayer. To help introduce today's message, I really just want to read you some more from that journal to let him tell his own story. So the first thing he did is Turner kind of set up a makeshift camp around him. He, he had his camp stove, his sleeping bag, 
and really enough food for a week. He was careful not to let anything slip out of his reach. He took an inventory of every piece of gear, thinking about how it could either be used to set him free or maybe even signal for help. At first, Turner melted snow for water to drink, but what he could reach quickly ran out. He tried tying a length of cord to the lid of his water bottle to toss it into the lake to get more water, but it got stuck in the rocks just a few feet short of the lake. On Wednesday, Turner wrote this, I feel so foolish taking this longer pass, so lonely, more than I imagined. Who would have guessed that four days would have gone by and no one has come this way? After a couple of more days, he wrote this, God is with me, but I'm angry with him. Why this terrible injustice, or is it the product of pride? This sense of wrestling against God or the angel of God is distressing. What can I do against God? I don't want to be fighting against God's will. How am I failing him? Or what does he need me to teach? What is the purpose of this ordeal? Will I ever know or continue to be puzzled, angered, and feeling quite abandoned by the one I serve? With still no signs of help, Turner realized there was absolutely no feeling left in his left leg. So once again, he struggled intensely to try to free himself. And then he wrote, I cried out and cried out to God who doesn't seem to care about my suffering, struggling and pain and the loss of my left leg. I begged and prayed for some help in moving the rock, but none seemed to come. After a week had passed trapped in those rocks, he wrote this, shutting down, getting low, thought I would be found yesterday. Many thoughts, most of church, future for kids, some friends. I love you, Diane. Terribly sorry for stupid. And then there's the unreadable, undecipherable word in the journal at that place. Backpacker Magazine, who actually ran a story on uh, Turner's ordeal, it was called Trapped, wrote this. Then as the final hours approached, Turner's body was shutting down, but it was though his spirit was opening up. All the questions, all the doubt and anger seemed to dissolve like so much morning mist on that unnamed lake. What remained was the unbreakable bedrock of belief. A boulder could crush his legs. It could not crush his faith. So here's Turner's, Turner's final journal entry. Fill me with peace, Lord. May the conditions not deny my love for you. I'm ready to die, though missing my family. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I will trust in God, though he will slay me. Yet will I trust him. He is the way, the truth, the light. So 10 days after he was penned, my journal went quiet, went silent. It wasn't until August 31st, almost a month after Turner began his hike, that Jeff Stewart, a hiker from San Diego, was making his way through that part of the wilderness when he noticed what appeared to be a man sitting up on the rocks. And he called out, hey, are you all right? There was no answer. That's how Mike Turner's body was found. Well, Turner's story, though one very few here will ever experience, does illustrate the reality that sometimes we pray, sometimes really great servants of God pray, and they receive no answer. And that's where I'd like to begin. You're not the only one who struggled with unanswered prayer. Now, many of you recognize the name Ted Turner. He's a cable television mogul. He's the former owner of the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Hawks, and World Championship Wrestling, the WCW. But Mr. Turner is also well known for his inflammatory remarks about Christianity. He once told the National Press Club, heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? 
boring, boring. Where we're going, we'll have a chance to make things better because hell is supposed to be a mess. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Ted Turner actually grew up in a Christian home and at one time even considered becoming a missionary. In his own words, he said, I was saved seven or eight times. So what turned him so bitter against Christianity? In a word, unanswered prayer. The turning point was the day his sister's sister died in spite of praying fervently for God to heal her. From that day forward, according to Turner, the more he strayed from his faith, the better he felt. Folks, don't kid yourself. This is serious stuff. In today's message, we won't uncover all the mysteries of unanswered prayer, but I hope to point you in a positive direction even when nothing else in your life is making sense. You know, Newsweek magazine, it conducted a poll that they called, Is God Listening? Here's what they found. 87% believe that God answers their prayer at least some of the time. 85% insisted that they could accept God's failure to grant their prayers. But get this final statistic, 13% declared that they've lost faith because their prayers went unanswered. In a National Pew survey back in 2006, 55% of respondents reported that they'd received a definite answer to a specific prayer, whereas 42% replied, that they had not. If you've ever prayed for something in earnest, something you knew was not selfish, something that was right and good and certainly appeared to be the best solution for the situation, only to get nothing, then you already know about the agony of unanswered prayer. There are times when we all wonder, does God hear us at all? In the Bible, King David fasted and prayed for seven days that his infant son would not die, but he did anyway. Jeremiah prayed that Jerusalem would not be destroyed, and then the Babylonians came along and wiped it out completely. Jeremiah complained to God about this, and he said, you've covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through to you. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul prayed for the removal of an affliction that he called his thorn in the flesh. It never went away. Jesus prayed that his followers, that we would be as one, that we would live in unity with one another. But look at all the divisions between Christians. You won't find a single global Christian leader who believed that Jesus' prayer has been answered for the church to be united. We're still waiting an answer for that prayer. Reginald White has another example of the unanswered prayer of Jesus. He wrote this, Jesus prayed for Peter before the great denial, in view of the denial, about the denial, but Peter still denied. Even the Lord's intercession could not evade the crucial test or prevent the shameful fall. Chaplain Max Helton prayed beside the car of Dale Earnhardt prior to the start of the 2001 Daytona 500. Earnhardt told Helton, just pray that I'll be wise in putting the car at the right place at the right time and be able to drive with wisdom. They then prayed for wisdom and safety. But yet in that very race, Earnhardt lost his life in the final lap. If we go to the great chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, we see many whose prayers were answered in miraculous supernatural ways, but a whole host of them that were not. You see, after this long list of great victories, we come to the last paragraph, the final paragraph, and get this, it's a list of prayers that were not answered. It describes how many of God's best servants were tortured and beaten and put in prison. Here, look at the verse. 
It, it begins by saying, who through faith conquered kingdoms, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, whose weakness was turned to strength. Others were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So here you have this contrast between believers who experience supernatural deliverances and answers to prayer with those who've let, felt nothing but the sting and unfairness of this world. And it's one little word that makes this verse so meaningful. It's the word others. When the writer of Hebrews says others were tortured and then continues to describe all the horrible suffering that happened to the others, you say, why is that word so important? I'll tell you why. Because unlike English, the Greeks had two separate word for the word others. One word was heteros, and it meant others of a different kind. The other word was alos, and it meant others of the same kind. So guess which word is used by the writer of Hebrews? It's the word alos, others of the same kind. In other words, those who suffered, those who were persecuted, those who faced the worst that life has to offer, they were others, but just like those who'd been delivered. There was no difference in their faith. They weren't being punished or in some way less deserving of God's miracles. They were others of the same kind. And notice what God had to say about them in the end. The world was not worthy of them. My point is this, just because life is hard, just because your experience doesn't seem to square up with someone else's, just because you're not seeing miracles all around you every day doesn't make you inferior or infer that you're a person with no faith. Don't listen to idiots who say your faith is inferior or you just don't truly believe. Stop listening to people who don't even read the Bible they claim to love. It doesn't mean your faith is faltering because you didn't get a miraculous deliverance. People with very real faith have very different experiences in life. I mean, think about it. We love to tell the story of Daniel in the lion's den and his miraculous deliverance. Man, it's a great story, and it's true. But what do you do with the fact that thousands of Christians were thrown to the lions in Rome and no angel appeared to deliver them? I wonder how many of them prayed to be delivered like Daniel. Or how about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were thrown into the fiery furnace because of their faith, and they were totally untouched by the flame. The Bible says they didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes. It was a miracle, no doubt. But where was God when Nero was burning Christians at the stake just to light his gardens at night? You can't tell me that none of those believers cried out for that same deliverance as Daniel's friends experienced. Or how about Acts 12? Herod kills James with the sword. He was one of the apostles. Herod intends to do the same thing to Peter, but the church prays and an angel of the Lord comes and sets Peter free. Are we to assume that the church didn't pray like that for James? Well, that's not likely. And even if you were to say that, it's hard to believe that the church had much faith in praying for Peter, since once Peter is delivered, he goes straight to the prayer meeting and he couldn't even get in because nobody believed it was Peter at the door. They said, no, he's still in prison. The truth is, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out the truth that in the Bible, there's ample evidence that sometimes we pray and don't get what we want, expect, or think we deserve. And anybody who says otherwise, frankly, they just don't read their Bible. 
So before I can point you in the right direction, I want to clear up some false teaching. That's what this next point is about, that prayer is not a formula and God is not a vending machine. You see, there is a tendency to treat God like a cosmic vending machine where all you have to do is put in your prayer, make your selection, and the answer just drops into your lap. Sometimes we're told by other Christians that we just didn't ask correctly, as if prayer consists of just using the right words, like there's a magic formula for getting through to God. Uh, maybe we need to throw in some these and thous in order to be more effective. But Romans 8 teaches us that we often don't know how to pray as we should, so the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans which cannot be uttered. The Bible makes clear that prayer isn't about a formula or buttering up God. Let me give you an example of how people have twisted and misused Scripture simply by not studying or understanding what the Bible is actually saying. Take, for example, praying in the name of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Now, what did he mean by that? Is he saying you'll get whatever you want as long as you sign off in prayer with the phrase in Jesus' name? Is Jesus' name the magic pin number with God, like your ATM card, you're not going to get any money out of the account unless you input the correct pin number? Is Jesus teaching us that we just need to tack on the phrase in Jesus' name to every prayer because that's what obligates God to do what I'm asking regardless of what that might be? No, that's not what that means at all. What it means is, is if you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying like this, Dear Father, I'm asking you this because this is what Jesus would want. It's about praying in agreement with what Jesus wants done in the situation. Asking in his name is about asking on his behalf because you know what Jesus would want to do for this individual or in this situation. You say, Pastor Keith, how would a person even know that? Well, the only way we know that is by regular, sustained time of communing with God in prayer and in his word. Or think of it like this. You know, when I was a kid, we used to play cops and robbers. And if you were a cop, you'd say to the robber, stop in the name of the law. This is similar to what it means to pray in Jesus' name. A police officer operates off an authority granted to them by the law. They don't make the laws. They just enforce them. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're praying in his authority based on what he wants, not what you want. You don't get to decide what God wants. You get to be the conduit for expressing his will to others, like the police officer is the conduit for the will of the law. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's why Peter prayed this. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So Peter meets a beggar, and he has no money, though the beggar's asking for money. He has no silver or gold. But that's what the beggar wanted, wasn't it? I mean, that's what he just asked for. The beggar thought that's what he needed the most. But Peter was a man who walked with God, a man who listened to God. So he didn't give the beggar what he wanted. He gave him instead what he needed. I mean, let's face it, even in this situation, Silver or gold is not going to solve this guy's problem because once he spends that, he'll be in the same situation tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. What the guy needed most, really what we need most, is healing for our crippled condition. We also need to be healed of a beggar mentality. So here's a guy who spent his entire life thinking that all he needs is money. All he needs from life is a handout. And God shows up and gives the guy what he really needs, not what he really wants. 
And it all happened in the name of Jesus. So when Peter says, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus, he's saying, I'm listening to Jesus right now, and this is what Jesus wants for you. You see, what makes the Christian life such an adventure are those times I have an encounter with someone, and because I've been listening to God throughout the day, and I'm listening to him in the moment, when I act, I act on behalf of Jesus. I act in Jesus' name. In other words, I do what he wants done in the situation. When I do what God wants done, that's when I'm praying in Jesus' name. When what I'm asking for is in total alignment with God's will for this situation or that person, that's when I'm praying in Jesus' name, regardless of whether or not I use the phrase. When Jesus tells us to pray in his name, he's not saying tack on this phrase to every prayer you pray. He's telling us to pray in accordance with the will of God. You see, some of us have some bad teaching stuck in our head that makes unanswered prayer exponentially worse because we automatically assume we're either not doing it right or there's something wrong with us. And some of this bad teaching is not just bad because it doesn't work, it's bad because it diminishes God. Some people talk like if you could just pray according to their formula, you could have God practically eating out of your hands. When people do this, what they're really trying to do is bring God down to their level, to teach that there's a secret way of manipulating God to do our bidding, where we become the master and God becomes our servant. That's what I mean by diminishing God. God does not exist to do our bidding. We exist to do what he wants done. Because if it's the other way around, then we're God and he's not. So don't listen to false teachers who tell you that prayer is all about manipulating God by saying the right words. So now let's talk about not an answer, but the direction we need. You know, the Bible is strangely silent on the why, on on why God doesn't answer our prayers. It admits the fact that sometimes prayers go unanswered. You can find that throughout scripture. I pointed them out to you. Of course, sin can be a factor in unanswered prayer and so can selfishness. But by no means is that the only explanation for unanswered prayer, because a lot of people whose prayers are not answered don't fit into those categories, like the believers in the last paragraph of Hebrews 11, or Job, or Jeremiah, or Jesus. I I can say this, don't expect clear, easy, or simple answers from me on this. I don't know any. Believe me, if I did, I'd give them to you. In this world, things don't always make sense, and everything doesn't fit into a nice theological box. Honestly, I grow tired of those who think they have God in their back pocket. God isn't in anybody's back pocket, and no one has all this figured out. Let me remind you of something I heard a long time ago. You can easily recognize false teachers by the fact that they know the answer to all the questions. You know, on this side of eternity, everything doesn't always make sense. Each of us will face challenges for which there'll be no easy answers. So the things I share with you today won't put these questions to rest so that you'll never, ever struggle with this again. I don't have perfect words. I don't even have final words, but hopefully they'll be good words for tough times. So first, let me briefly mention the answers we don't want to hear. You know, sometimes answers are delayed. Moms, dads, I mean, have you ever noticed with your kids that second only to the word no, the words not yet rank as the most awful words in the English language? Mom, I'm seven years old and I want to wear makeup. Not yet. 
Now, does your kid automatically accept your wisdom on that matter? Like, gee, mama never thought about it like that before. Sure, I'll wait till I'm 18. No, they cry like you just ruined their life. There's some things you and I will ask for God in prayer that are definitely things God wants to do for you, but maybe the timing is wrong. Take, for example, Paul's desire to go to Rome. We know it was Paul's ambition to preach the gospel where it had never been preached. In that day, Rome represented the cultural, political, and commercial center of the world. So Paul prayed, and he prayed that God would permit him to go to Rome. It would be strategically important for the gospel to reach Rome. But over and over again, God said, not yet. Now, why did God wait so long to answer Paul's prayer? Mainly because God knew something Paul didn't, and that is that Paul would only get one shot at Rome. He would have a fantastic, a phenomenal ministry in the short time he was permitted to be there, but the second time he returned to Rome, it would be in shackles to be executed. For some of you, God wants to do the very thing you want to do, but not yet. You don't know what lies ahead. He does. That's why it's important to remember this principle. It may be difficult to wait on the Lord, but it's worse to wish you had. What I'm telling you is, is we look for immediate answers, but sometimes God is working on a bigger picture, a larger plan. Sometimes answers to prayer are delayed. And in a society that's filled with instant gratification, we don't like that at all. Other times, answers are disguised. You know, in church history, few people have exerted more influence over present-day Christianity than Augustine. He lived around 300 AD. It was his writings that most influenced Martin Luther, who ignited the Protestant Reformation. But what you may not know is that Augustine didn't grow up as a believer. His father worshipped idols and was extremely sexually promiscuous. It was his mother who was a devout Christ follower. But Augustine was more like his dad than his mom and had the same issues with promiscuity. So as a young man, Augustine decided he wanted to leave North Africa and go to Rome. His mother, Monica, began praying in earnest for her son not to go. Why? Because Rome was sin central. It was an endless source of temptation. The worst of all evils were there and in abundance. Monica feared that if her son went to Rome, she would lose him for good and she'd lose him for God. In fact, she prayed and wept so much for her son that her tears became legendary. So much so that when Spanish explorers were traveling up our West Coast, they came across a spot overlooking the Pacific Ocean and seeing the sunlight sparkling across the waves, they said, it looks like Monica's tears. So they called the place Santa Monica, St. Monica's. Well, long story short, Augustine did go to Rome. And he did everything his mother feared he would do. But God had a plan. You see, there are some people who have to get their fill of everything they want in order to discover that it doesn't really satisfy. And that's exactly what happened to Augustine. He he lived such a debauched and depraved lifestyle that he finally realized it would never make him happy. So he surrendered his life to Christ in the very place his mother prayed he would not go. So what Monica asked for was denied, but the substance of her prayer was granted. Augustine explained it like this, you, that's God, in the depths of your counsels, hearing the main point of her desire, regarded not what she then asked, that you might make me what she ever desired. You see, God didn't ignore Monica's prayers. He answered her prayer in a way she couldn't see or understand at the time. 
Sometimes answers are disguised. You know, for some of you, you've got a loved one right now who's very sick and you're praying for their healing, but things aren't getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. You know, sometimes God heals miraculously, supernaturally in an instant. We love that. Other times God works through doctors and medicines. We love that too. But the other way he heals is sometimes he takes his kids home to heal them. I mean, let's face it. Any healing that you get in this life is temporary at best because eventually the body will succumb to illness, accident, or age. It's inevitable. But when we're finally standing in the presence of God, our full and final healing will be complete. We'll never need healing again. Now, that may not be the answer we want for my loved one to go on into the presence of God because I want to keep him here with me. And I get that. I really do. But I'm just telling you, sometimes an answer to prayer is disguised, and it could be that even a prayer for healing was answered, but just not in the way we wanted. Then maybe the hardest thing for any of us to deal with is this third category, and that's when a prayer is denied. Gene Ingelow once said, I've lived to thank God that all my prayers have not been answered. Very wise woman. Ruth Bell Graham, she was the wife of the evangelist Billy Graham. She once said, God has not always answered my prayers. If he had, I would have married the wrong man several times. And even the great Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis, if God had granted all the silly prayers I've made in my life, where should I be now? You know, sometimes we treat God like a Coke machine. We think prayer is about putting in the correct amount, making our selection, and getting what we want. And all that works fine until it doesn't. Coke machines are great until they give you a Diet Coke when what you really wanted was a Dr. Pepper. Now, what do you do when that happens? If you're like me, you get mad. You smash the buttons, you kick the machine, you tip it from side to side. We did our part, now we want the machine to do its part. It's not so different with prayer. When we don't get what we want, we get angry. Sometimes we feel hurt, betrayed, we lose faith. Sometimes we even walk away from the church. The truth is God loves us too much to say yes to some request. And frankly, deep down inside, we really wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, did your parents say yes to everything you ever asked of them? Of course not. Were there legitimate reasons for them saying no from time to time? Sure. So why did they say no to some of your requests as a kid? Wasn't it because they could see some things and understand some things that maybe you couldn't in the moment? Like this could be harmful to you or, or, or you're just not ready yet, or it could be that it would get in the way of other good things that they had planned for you. So maybe our unanswered prayers fits into one of those categories and maybe they don't at all. So what do you do when you don't know why God isn't answering your prayer? Well, I would say this, we need a faith that keeps on walking. John Claypool, he was a pastor, had a daughter who had leukemia. When she went into remission, everybody thought, everybody believed God had healed her. But on an Easter Sunday morning, she had a terrible recurrence. In his book, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler, Claypool relates how for two weeks his daughter was racked with pain, her eyes swollen shut. She asked her dad, Daddy, did you talk to God about my leukemia? He said, Yes, dear. We've been praying for you. And then she asked, Did you ask him how long the leukemia would last? What did God say? I mean, what do you do? What do you say to your daughter when there's nothing you can do or say to make things better? Claypool was wiped out emotionally and spiritually. A few hours after that conversation, his daughter died. The following Sunday, Claypool was back in the pulpit. 
So at his lowest moment, he preached the most powerful sermon he'd ever preached in his life. His message came from Isaiah chapter 40. Here's the passage. He, that's God, gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Now, this verse was written to the Israelites during the Babylonian captivity. They would spend nearly two generations in Babylon. They're spiritually, they're emotionally exhausted. They're confused. They're bitter. They're feeling abandoned by God. So Isaiah wants to encourage them. He wants to remind them that not only did God know what they were going through, but he also understood what they were needing. So in Claypool's sermon, as he's speaking about this verse, he said this, there are three stages of life. Sometimes we mount up with wings as an eagle and fly. We're on top of the world. Sometimes we run and we don't grow weary. We just go through the routine. Sometimes it's all we can do to walk and not faint. And I need your prayers and your encouragement. You know, I pointed this out before, but it's worth pointing out again. Isaiah reverses the natural order in this verse on purpose. The normal progression of human development is to crawl, to walk, to run. Isaiah turns that upside down. He goes from flying to running to walking. So instead of ascending order, he describes the progression in descending order. Now, if you've ever been in a Christian bookstore and you see this verse on a painting or a poster, it's almost always of an eagle soaring high above the ground. Based on the way Isaiah said this, that's not the point of this passage at all. In fact, it completely misses the point. You know, in Bible study, we have this rule. It's called the rule of end stress. That is, whenever you have three of something, the emphasis is always on the third thing, the last thing on the list. So think about this. If I share with you just one thing or you see just one thing in the Bible, it's to get you focused. When you share two things, it's about comparing and contrasting those two things. But with three things, the last thing mentioned is the thing that's being emphasized. So Isaiah first tells his readers that there are times when God helps his people soar on wings like eagle. In other words, he intervenes, he sets them free, he lifts them above their problems. Then he mentions another way. He says, there are other times when God helps us run and not grow weary. So these are times when we're given supernatural strength to run a race and never tire, never get bogged down, a total runner's high. But neither of those things are what's going to happen with the people in captivity. What Isaiah is emphasizing is how God is going to help them keep walking and not faint, not give up. That's the third truth. It's the climactic statement. That's what Isaiah is emphasizing. He's talking about the ability to just keep putting one foot in front of the other until you reach your destination. In other words, there's not going to be a supernatural means of escape coming. God's not going to do what he did like in the past, like in Egypt, and send a Moses and bring some plagues and work some miracles and set you free. Instead, he's going to give you strength to endure. And honestly, this might be the greatest miracle of all, because this is where life is lived for most all of us. Now, I don't know about you, but I marvel more at people who survive a crisis than those who are spared one. The real test of faith comes not when a person flies or runs, but when they can keep plodding along, even when everything inside them wants to give up. 
And that's where some of you are right now. You're saying, okay, God, I, I can hang on. I don't feel very triumphant. I've been hurt. I'm wounded. I've suffered loss. I'm confused. And God, to be honest, I'm not hearing your voice all that well. But God, I won't let go of you. I'm just going to keep on walking. Now, let me tell you something from the heart. You're the others that the writer of Hebrews was talking about. People who've walked through the fire but kept on walking. People who've suffered unfairness, the blows of life, the hurts, the setback, the pain, but you keep on trusting anyway. You're what the writer was talking about when he said, of whom the world is not worthy. People may not want to write up your story as an inspirational piece, but let me tell you something, you're my hero. And you most definitely have God's stamp of approval as one for whom the world is not worthy. Okay, one last thing. The difference between an if faith and a though faith. You know, it was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who did a talk once about the difference between an if faith and a though faith. Listen to this. There is what you call an if faith, and there is a though faith. Now, the if faith says, if all goes well, if life is hopeful, prosperous, and happy, if I don't have to face the agonies and burdens of life, if none of these things happen, then I'll have faith in God, then I'll be all right. That's the if faith. Some people, that's what they have, and that's all they have is an if faith. If God does what they tell him to do, if God complies with their expectations, then they'll follow him. But let's call that what it really is. It's a desire to be God and for God to be our servant. It's insisting that I know what's best and how things should be, so God had better just get with the program. That's having an if faith. But then there's a though faith, and, and Dr. King expounded on this. He said, the though faith says, though things go wrong, though evil is temporarily triumphant, though sickness comes and the cross looms, nevertheless, I'm going to believe anyway, and I'm going to have faith anyway. That's the kind of faith that Job had. He had a though faith. He wrote, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job is a book in the Bible practically dedicated to the idea of unanswered prayer. Yet even when facing the silence of heaven and struggling with the lack of any answer whatsoever, Job said, I still choose to trust God. Even if God were to kill me, I'd still put my faith in him. Well, how do you get to that place? Well, that flows out of having a great relationship to God to begin with. They say the time to build a storm shelter is before you get to the storm. The stronger your walk with God is in the good times, the better it sustains you in the difficult times. You see, when you have known just how good God can be, how loving he is of you without any condition, no strings attached, giving you so much better than you deserve, blessing you with great friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you know and really trust how good he is, Sure, there may be times you struggle with knowing what he's up to in the moment, struggling with why he doesn't seem to be giving you any direction, stumbling in the dark, trying to find your way. But you say, I'm not going to doubt in the dark times what God showed me in the light. He hasn't brought me this far to abandon me now. And though I may not understand and may never understand why things happened the way they did, I trust him. That's having a though faith. So do you have an if faith or do you have a though faith?
And let me close once again by reading from Mike Turner's final journal entry that I read at the start of today's message. He wrote, fill me with peace, Lord. May the conditions not deny my love for you. I'm ready to die, though missing my family. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I will trust in God, though he will slay me. Yet I will trust him. He is the way, the truth, and the light. Let's pray. Father, I know that today's message can't even begin to address the scope of, of pain and confusion and the darkness that so many people feel in their heart around unanswered prayer. But I pray more than anything that this would be a nudge in the direction of healing and hope, a remembrance that in this world, in this life, we won't always have answers and it's okay to struggle. It's okay to ask questions. If anything at all I see in your word is even some of your choices, they had to struggle with the reality that what they were asking for and how they were praying, it just didn't seem like, God, you were moving at all, but they felt the freedom to express that doubt in your direction. And God, that's what keeps us on the path, is that even though we may falter, even though we may fail, even though we may stumble, even though we, God, may lose our way from time to time, if we maintain that connection, if we, if we voice our concerns in your direction, if we, if we channel our anger towards you, then God, we're following in the footsteps of spiritual giants. I pray for anyone who's struggling right now, who's been made to feel inferior because they're struggling, that God, they would come to understand that they're the very ones written about at the end of Hebrews 11. They are the others, the others with the same kind of faith, the others who have just as much a walk with Jesus as anybody who came before, yet they go through difficult times. They go through struggles. They go through things that they don't understand and of whom the world was not worthy. So God, I pray that we would see ourselves the way you see us. That God, we would learn that the, the key is, is just to keep on walking, that you, God, will supply us the strength to keep putting one foot in front of the other, even, God, when we don't know that we're even headed in the right direction. So, God, I pray that you administer to us as we struggle with these issues, as we lean into what you have to say, help us to know what we know, and that is that you're a good God, that you love us incredibly, that you'll never abandon us no matter what we're going through, and that Jesus Jesus promised he would be with us even to the end of the world. We thank you, God, for your promises. We claim that in the darkness. In your name I pray, amen. Oh, it's been so good to be with you today. I, I'm so grateful that you choose to join us every week, that you, you log in, you, you check out the message. Please, if, if today's message spoke to you, know that it would speak to others as well. Share it in your social media, like us, share your comments, share your prayer requests with us. Whatever is you're going through right now, we'd love to join you in those prayers. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.